0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, this is so exciting. This is my first time uh, in Australia, and we've been working on this for a year, and I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I too want to acknowledge that this talk is taking place on the unceded ancestral territories of indigenous peoples, of first peoples. Um, I uh, also want to pay my respects to my elders, both past, present, and to come. Uh, I uh, believe deeply that we must know our history and we must be able to trace the past into the present. The past is never separate from the present. And when we don't know our history, we are left with very, very problematic explanations for current conditions. And I want to start with a quote from Egioma Oluo, who's local to where I live, Seattle, Washington, which is on the ancestral territories of the Duwamish peoples. Uh, and this quote helps frame the focus I'm going to take tonight. This is arguably the most complex, nuanced, sensitive, charged, politicized social dilemma. Uh, For the last several hundred years right and and just disclaimer. We're not going to solve race relations in the next hour Mm -hmm. right Um, And there are myriad ways in and all of them are important This is only one But this is one that is so consistently left off the table So when we have any kind of professional development on race or racism We tend to learn about them and we study their their struggles, their triumphs, uh, what we need to know when we're interacting with them. But again, we so seldom ever ask, struggles in relation to whom? Triumphs in relation to whom or what? Who am I as I interact across racial difference? So we're gonna focus on dominant culture or on whiteness, on white people. So let me begin by positioning myself I'm white. Check me out. (laughs) And part of being white is that goes against all my socialization. I was not raised to think about myself in racial terms. I understood that somebody had race, but not really me. And if we were going to be talking about race, we'd be talking about their race, not mine. I wasn't raised to see my race as significant to anything you could know about me. So what if I'm white? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm really clear today, uh, after a good 20 years of day in and day out talking to <laughs> primarily other white people and being called in and working with uh, and hearing the testifying of people of color, I'm really clear I'm white. I have a white frame of reference, I have a white worldview, and I move through the world with a white experience. And it is not just a universal human experience. It is most particularly a white experience in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race. So while I'm always coming from that position, I want to be really explicit about it tonight. And I'm talking to the majority of people, typically in any room that I'm in. Sometimes when the topic is is race, you'll see a more diverse group. But the people sitting at the tables making decisions that affect the lives of those who are not at those tables are overwhelmingly white. And that, So when I say we and us, that's who I'm speaking to and about. Let me say a little bit about what might be valuable about this talk for the people here who are not white, for First Peoples uh, and people of color. Most of what I can articulate today about what it means to be white rests on uh, centuries of people of color uh, sharing this information, right? Uh, Both those who come before me and those in my present life. Unfortunately, one of the ways that racial bias works is that white people, whether we are conscious of it or not, tend to be a little more open. <laughs> We're not that open. But a little more open being challenged on this from other white people. So to not use this position in that way for me to be, would be to really be white. And my goal is to be a little less white, <laughs> which means <laughs> a little less oppressive, right? Um, and, of course, as I stand here in front of you, as a white person, uh, talking uh, about race, as, as, you know, positioned as an expert on race, no less, I am also reinforcing whiteness. Uh, I want to acknowledge that. Uh, Audre Lorde talks about the master's tools dilemma. Right? How do you, how do you dismantle the master's house when you only have the master's tools. So this is a, something I have struggled with for a very long time. I see it as a both end. Yes, I am centering whiteness in this talk. And whiteness stays centered by being unmarked and unnamed. So to decenter it, you have to center it differently. You have to expose it. And that will be my goal. Um, And nothing in dominant culture really gives any of us good information about how this works. And most of the time we are denying and gaslighting people of color when they try to talk to us about their experiences. Uh, So this may be a useful framework uh, for uh, first peoples and people of color to kind of think about their experiences through. Well, what are some of the challenges of trying to talk to white people about racism? (laughs) Uh, A great example is that I was recently going to give this talk to a large tech company and the legal department wanted to see my slides first, and when they saw this one they said, could you take the word white off that slide? To which I replied, oh, you have the wrong speaker. Okay, (laughs) You should have vetted me, because no, I will not. All right. So some of the challenges. Um, And I hope, I want to say that I, I hope Another thing that is valuable about this talk for, for first peoples and people of color in the room tonight is that I'm going to name and admit to things that white people will rarely ever name and admit to. And if you've ever scratched your head wondering, how do they pull this off? <laughs> can they really not see this? I will help you with that. All right. And before I go any further, since you're, you're giving me so much uh, Energy here. I want to um, say a little bit about my use of humor. I do use humor in my talks. On one level, it's my style, but it is also a strategy, right? It is a strategy to kind of disarm, to kind of help us um, uh, discharge, if you will, some of the tension that builds up for those of us who are white when, when we're challenged on race. There's a kind of cognitive dissonance, and we can shut down. The laughter helps lighten us, it helps open us, uh, and it helps disarm us a little bit. If we can laugh at ourselves, we can maybe lighten up a bit. Huh? No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but. I also want to acknowledge that the, that the humor won't work for everyone. And I want to be really clear that I never, ever mean to be glib or dismissive about the devastating impact of racism on First Peoples and peoples of color. All right, what are some of the challenges? Well, first, I've never met a white person who doesn't have an opinion on racism. Have you? If you're not sure all white people have opinions on racism, just bring it up the next time you're around a bunch of white people and watch what happens. I don't think you can grow up in a uh, a Western uh, colonial settler context and not develop an opinion on racism, right? That doesn't make it informed. So the first challenge for those of us who are white is humility. Right? And I'm going to say perhaps my first controversial thing tonight, besides what I've already said, which is that being white has meaning. My next controversial thing I'm going to say is that if you are white, I am sure you have an opinion on this topic, and I don't know you. I don't know anyone in this room, uh, pretty much, and yet I am confident to say if you have not devoted years of sustained study, struggle, focus, risk-taking, educating, uh, mistake-making, repair, relationship-building, on this topic, your opinions are necessarily superficial and uninformed. Now, how can I say that when I don't know you? Maybe you've taken a trip to Costa Rica. Maybe you have multiracial nieces and nephews. All <laughs> right? Uh, maybe you were in, you know, the Peace Corps. Um, I can say this because nothing in dominant society gives you the information you would need to have an impo- informed opinion. Uh, in fact, the forces push against you having an authentic, informed opinion. You can get through graduate school in this country without ever discussing racism, can you not? You can get through law school in this country without discussing racism, can you not? You can get through teacher education in this country without discussing racism. Isn't that interesting? I'm not from here, and I still know that, (laughs) right? You can be seen as qualified to lead a major or minor university or any institution. Lead people, sit on boards, right? with no ability to engage with any complexity or nuance in the topic of racism, can you not? All right, so that's what I mean. Challenge one, humility. Your learning cannot and will not be finished. Challenge two, if I do a good job tonight, the white folks in this room are not going to be comfortable for the next hour. (laughs) Uh, That is not my goal. The racist status quo is comfortable for me virtually 24-7. And I don't, I'm not here to coddle that or uphold that. I'm here to unsettle it. That is where our learning edges are. The key is going to be what you do with those moments if I manage to achieve them. And you can use your reactions as a way out, and many white people will. Oh, I felt angry, defensive, therefore she did it wrong. I, I'll go home and think, I did it right, I did it right. Um, right? Or you can think to yourself, OK, how can I use this incredible opportunity of racial discomfort to take a deeper uh, kind of venture in inward, right? What can it help me uh, reveal about the structures of meaning that I'm operating from that would cause me to have that reaction, right? It's on me uh, and it's it's a really powerful moment. So the key is how we use them and, this will be one of the places where discomfort begins. Uh, is Individualism is an incredibly precious ideology in Western culture, but it is really only granted to those of us who are white. And just generalizing about white people will set us off. White, We don't like being generalized about, right? Um, And and a lot of the white people in my talk tonight are going to think about all the ways that they see themselves as an exception to what I'm talking about. And I would say, when you do that, that shows how you're not an exception. Okay? Um, We are individuals. We are also members of a social group in which... By virtue of our membership in this group, we can literally predict whether our mothers and ourselves were going to survive our births, and we can predict how long we're going to live because we are a member of this group. So we have to be willing to set aside individualism and grapple with the shared meaning, the collective messages and socialization that we all uh, receive. So if I, and i got a really short period of time with you, so if I'm saying most white people X, and you're sitting there going, ha, I was a Y. Okay, good for you, you were a Y, I was an X, (laughs) most are X. How did Y set you up into the overall racist structure? Uh, It sets you up differently than X set me up, but none of us could be exempt from the forces of racism in this country. Uh, And again, it's on you to figure out how you were shaped by them, but not if you were shaped by them. We think that if we can't see it, it isn't there. Uh, A lot of the things I'm saying right now, I'm going to make a case for as we go along, but uh, white people's ability to recognize racism is not actually uh, connected to its reality. And finally, we don't understand racism as a system. Right? So, so let's start there. I'm going to quickly go through some definitions, because we often use these terms uh, interchangeably. Uh, and they're I, I mean very specific things. Um, and by the way, I've worked really hard to do my best to um, adapt this for your context. But that will be a really easy way out for the white people in this room to want to dismiss me because I'm American. I can tell you, I get emails from from first peoples and people of color from all over the world, including Australia, completely resonating with their experience of white fragility. It's here. Put some skin in the game, and you figure out how to translate it in the places that I'm not going to be able to do that perfectly. Uh, But again, we don't want to use that as a way out. So prejudice is prejudgment. Everybody has it. We get it from everywhere. If, I, if I'm an aware that a social group exists, I have preconceived notions. Uh, fortunately, the research and implicit bias is really, really clear. We all have bias. Most of it is unconscious. Right? And we all act on it. We all discriminate. Right? All human beings have socially learned biases about social others as defined in their particular culture, and we all act on those biases. So, It's it's a human dynamic. Uh, There are things we can do to challenge it. That's another talk. But we can remove the word reverse from this part of the conversation. It's nonsensical. (laughs) However, when you back a group's collective bias, with legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed into a far-reaching system. Right? It becomes automatic. It becomes the default. It's infused in everything right? uh, and in cultural, difference, uh, cultural definitions of who's even normal. What is normal? Right? What is intelligence? How do we measure it? Right? Who acts professionally in what context? Who has good hair? (laughs) Whose stories are told by whom? Whose stories are not told? So it's infused, it's embedded, it's the default, it's automatic, it is not dependent on your friendliness, on your self-image. It's 24-7, 365, the status quo. So I'm going to take an example from another form of oppression uh, to launch us into the form we're here to talk about tonight. You can't really separate these out, but for our really brief time together, I'm going to narrow in on racism. But I'm going to draw an example that I often use from the form called sexism. So women were granted in Australia suffrage, the right to vote, in 1902. Who granted women suffrage? Men. <laughs> Was there any other way that women could get their civil rights, in this case the right to vote, except for men to give it to us? No. right? Why not? Because we literally were not seated in the seats of institutional power. You couldn't even vote on your right to vote. Right? You couldn't probably speak in certain public forums. You had to have men speak for you. right? Clearly, there were men on board, or we wouldn't you wouldn't have suffrage. Uh, but ultimately, I think we can see they still benefited from a system that denied more than half the population their civil rights. And of course, a woman prior to suffrage, let's say it's, I'm a suffragette and it's 1901, I might have some attitude towards men. And I might be mean to a man in a one-on-one encounter. I can do that. That would be prejudice, and that would be discrimination, and it wouldn't be particularly nice. But could my group literally deny all men their civil rights? No. Could men as a group literally, and did, deny all women their civil rights? Yes. That is a very significant difference that must be acknowledged in language. When we use these terms interchangeably, we take that weight and the history of power off the table. Right? And I need to make a point, which is, which women were granted full access to the right to vote in 1902? White women. And uh, First, First Peoples uh, women did not receive that right until uh, around 1964 and, of course, that varies, right? And this is another dimension of institutional power. The dominant group's experience is held up as universal. So while we were oppressed as women, we were privileged as white. There is no more a universal woman's experience than there is a universal human experience on the physical plane where we live (laughs) in the here and now. So I want you to think about today whether men as a group here uh, in Australia could take away women's right to vote uh, if they wanted to. I want you to think about that question, and this isn't an interactive talk, but generally there's confusion when I ask and lots of no's. So I just want to give you some data from 2018. (laughs) Prime ministers, 99% male the chief executives 83 percent male the senior leaders, 70 percent male Senators, 72 Parliament 68 high court judges 57 court of appeal judges 76 military 83 police 82 so I just want you to think about it again if they wanted to could they I'm not saying they will my point is Institutional power is deeply embedded across history and institutions. It is not fluid. It doesn't change overnight. Patriarchy didn't end in 1902. Heads up, we live in patriarchy. We've always lived in patriarchy. We live in an androcentric, male-dominated society. And just to drive this home, I just have one image for you. I don't know who that is, I just Googled white guy. (laughs) Of the 100 top grossing films of all time across the world, 99 were directed by men. By definition, institutional power is the ability to disseminate your worldview to everyone to shape how they see themselves, how they see you, and how they see themselves in relationship to you. To be able to tell their stories, to be able to represent them when you don't know them, aren't in relationship with them, and have not been taught that it's valuable to be in relationship with them. Institutional power. And you must know the power of media to shape how all of us think about the world. So a mainstream definition of a racist. Well, individual, always an individual, not a system, who consciously does not like people based on race, must be conscious and intentionally seeks to be mean to them, must be intentional. Individual, conscious, intent. And that definition beautifully protects racism. It looks like a positive definition in that it's kind of saying That's not nice. Um, but. It exempts virtually all white people from the system we're in. And I think this definition is the root of virtually all defensiveness, all white defensiveness about racism. Do you guys notice any white defensiveness about racism? Okay. Because if this is my definition, and this is the average white person's definition, and you suggest something I've said or done is racially problematic, what I'm going to hear is that you just said I was an intentionally bad person. You have just literally questioned my morality, and now I need to defend my morality, and I will. Right? We've, all, we've all seen it. So racism is a system, not an event. right? And what that means is we think about it as occurring in, mo- it occurs in specific moments, but that the mainstream definition positions it as only occurring uh, in some moments and not others, and only done by some people and not others. Right? Uh, rather than, again, it circulates 24-7, 365. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you an image. This next slide, it is deliberately dense uh, and uh, this is based on US history. This is state-sanctioned, literally, we can think about as state-sanctioned organized crime against African-Americans uh, in the US. And it begins with kidnapping and 300 years of enslavement, torture, rape, and brutality, and it carries on. And about a quarter of the way in, you see bans on testifying against whites, which made it technically legal to murder black people uh, in the US. And you are now in my lifetime. One quarter of the way in the slide, you are in my lifetime. I would really, really, really like to never hear another white American say, I didn't own slaves, as if it ended that day. If we pick it up about two-thirds of the way in at employment discrimination, we are in 2018 with copious empirical evidence. All right. Well, lest you pass it over to us, let's look at state-sanctioned discrimination against indigenous peoples or first peoples in Australia. It begins with genocide, torture, rape, and brutality, and it carries on. And very early into that slide, you're at forced core sterilizations and we're in my lifetime. I'm gonna pick it up there. White Australian policy, Northern Territory intervention, non-compliance with UN human rights standards, governmental negligence, cultural mockery, employment discrimination, educational discrimination, biased policing practices, mass incarceration, school to prison pipeline, disproportionate special education referrals and punishments, testing, tracking, biased media representation, historical omissions, and so much more. It's a system, not an event. Nothing could and nothing did exempt any person in this room from the forces of this system. And friendliness and smiling doesn't impact that system, nor does traveling. (laughs) White supremacy has been exported globally uh, worldwide. So Marilyn Fry is a scholar who has a metaphor of, the, of a birdcage to make the point again, and I'm going to keep making this point because it's a, it's a really a missing kind of piece of understanding in the, in the collective white consciousness, uh, the, the point of racism as a system. So she says it's like a birdcage. If you walk up to that birdcage and you press your face all the way against the bars, you're not going to see them at all. Maybe just these two in your peripheral vision, but you're going to get an unobstructed view of the bird because you're taking a very micro view. And you're going to say, what's the problem? The little door's open, why doesn't the bird fly away? But if you step back and you begin to take a wider view, a more macro view, you start to see these Uh, bars, and then these bars, these bars, you begin to see an interlocking web or system uh, that may be reduced to any single bar the bird might be able to navigate, but put them all together and it makes it very unlikely. So let's look at what some of those bars are. We have institutionalized discrimination, racist ideology, cultural erasure, daily microaggressions, the little slights and indignities that people of color have to endure because we can't handle uh, hearing about it. Threat of violence, constant, isolation, internalizing the messages of inferiority, um, Rewards for conformity, I think any, any person of color or First Peoples person who, who works in an overwhelmingly white context understands the rewards for conformity and the burden of representation and invisibility at the same time and unacknowledged historical trauma, to name a few. Again, it's a system, not an event. But back to where, what we're, we're taught to see it as an either or. Do you ever notice when, when it's suggested that a white person in public has been racist, when they gather their evidence against the charge, uh, usually it's some friends that say, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> right? Nice people can't be racist. Right? So that's what I call the good-bad binary. Right? Racists are bad. We know how to fill this in. They're ignorant, they're bigoted, they're prejudiced, mean-spirited, old American <laughs> and not racists are good. And we're educated and progressive and open-minded, well-intended, young, Australian. <laughs> so we need to get rid of this. Again, it is not an either or. I think about it as a continuum that I am on. And I will be on for my life. And in any given moment, I ask myself, How am I doing on this continuum? And sometimes I'm further with one end and sometimes the other, but I'm not free of it, right? Um, So here's what I want to say really clearly. As a result of being born and raised in settler colonial context, I have a racist worldview. I have racist biases, and I have developed racist patterns. I also have investments in the system of racism because it has served me well, it is comfortable, and it has helped me navigate the barriers that I have faced. And I also have investments in not uh, seeing any of that for what it would suggest to me about my identity as a good person based on this framework and what it would actually require of me. Uh, White supremacy, racism, these are seductive systems. They are wily. And I can't be trusted. I have to be accountable. When white people tell me they're not racist, I mean, there's lots of things, I think. But one of them is, how do you know? And what, could anyone ever talk to you about how they see your racism? Or would you refuse that? And this binary sets us up to refuse it. So. Um, my area of scholarship is discourse analysis, and that is the critical examination of language. That, l- that words and phrases are not just neutral descriptors for some fixed reality, but the, the phrases and the words and the language that we have shapes how we see what we think of as reality. Language is always political, and that is why it is always a site of struggle. Uh, and so as I listen to white people talk about racism, um, I literally got this image in my mind of a, a dock. Uh, and it signifies two things for me. One, how surface or superficial these narratives are. But also, this dock, if you look at it from above, it looks like it's just floating on the water. But it's not. It's resting on an entire structure that is submerged underneath. There are pillars in that ocean floor that prop that dock up. And everything I do in my work is to try to get us off the top, all that superficial stuff up there that hasn't changed our outcomes, and get under there and look at the structures that keep reproducing uh, the same racial inequality despite what's on the top. So um, I I think of these narratives in two overall categories colorblind, and color celebrate. So let's start with colorblind. Probably the number one of these is, I was taught to treat everyone the same. Anybody ever heard that one? Okay, you ready? (laughs) Not one single person in this room was taught to treat everyone the same. You weren't. You don't. You can't. (laughs) You can be told to do it. I can lecture you and lecture you you don't do it. And the the research in implicit bias is really clear here. So when I hear this from a white person, there's a bubble over my head. It's got a couple things in it. One, oh, this person doesn't understand basic socialization. (laughs) This person doesn't understand culture. This person is not self-aware. And I need to tell you something. When people of color hear us say this, they're usually not thinking all right, I am talking to a woke white person right now. <laughs> Usually some version of eye rolling is going on. Up, up is going the wall. And I often co- co-lead with a, a woman, a black woman, Erin uh, Johnson, and she says, when I hear a white person say this, what I think is, this is a dangerous white person. This is a white person who's going to need to refuse my reality. So it is not doing what we think it's doing. And all of these are versions of that. Right? <laughs> children are so much more open. The research shows that by age three to four, all children who grow up in settler colonial contexts understand it's better to be white. All children, by three or four, everyone in this room, regardless of your age, knew very, very early, it's better to be white. They don't miss the message. And when we project racial innocence onto children, they're probably born innocent. They don't stay innocent. The the messages are relentless. It's not up to one person, right? It's relentlessly communicated to them, it is better to be white. and so we leave them unattended when we project this innocence onto them. So-and-so just happened to be black, but it has nothing to do with why no one in a, the department gets along with her. And this is another one, along with reverse, I would ask you to consider removing from your vocabulary on this topic. Uh, I forgot to say, uh, there's, <laughs> there's no such thing as reverse racism. Okay? Everyone has racial bias. Yes, they're just as biased as we are. When you back my bias with institutional power and legal authority, it's transformed, and I reserve the term racism to to acknowledge that, and so I don't use it for everybody. Right? Um, But this just happened to be regardless of, well, yes, but at the human level, Oh let's just all go up to the human level and get race off the table. And you know what the human level is? That's mine. That's my reality, right? So I might not know what race has to do with my response to my coworker, but I need to be willing to grapple with how race is shaping my response to my coworker. Uh, and I, I don't know the particular incidences that happened here, but I can tell you, and I'm sure you're aware of in the States, I wish that manager at Starbucks had asked herself, what does race have to do with my response to these two black men waiting for somebody? In the, I'm going to assume you all know about the Starbucks. Answer. Okay. All right, so you see why I call these colorblind. They basically say, I don't see it, or if I do, it has no meaning. There is a question that has never failed me in my efforts to uh, unpack uh, how we keep getting the same outcomes despite all of this. And that question is not, is this true or is this false? Because we'll never come to agreement on a question posed in such a binary way. The question that has never failed me is... How do these narratives function in the conversation? What happens when racism comes up and a white person invokes one of these narratives? And when we apply that question, I think we can see all of them exempt the person from any further engagement. All of them take racism off the table. Nothing to see here, let's move on. In doing that, all of them close rather than open the expiration, and all of them protect the racial hierarchy and the white position within it. They are closers and protectors. They are not openers. It does not have to be what you're consciously seeking to do. That's how they function in the conversation. All right, well, these colorblind. Some some folks here are probably past that. So what do the white progressives say? (laughs) Do you all know that white progressives are my specialty? (laughs) And I suspect I got some in the room. (laughs) All right. And why are white progressives my specialty? Because I am a huge white progressive. And when I first applied for a job to lead people in discussions on race, I thought, of course I'm qualified. I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) I mean, how could I be racist? Now, this was the 90s. That was very progressive in the 90s. I I would need to be a vegan today, um, but I'm working on that. Okay. I actually think white progressives cause the most daily harm to people (laughs) of color. Right? Why? Well, we are most likely to be in the lives of people of color. But the degree to which we think we're good to go, when racism comes up, that's where our energy is going to go. Make sure you see me as good to go. And none of it is going to go to where it needs to go for the rest of my life. Right? Uh, white progressives can be so arrogant, so certain, so complacent. right? We, we tend to lack humility. So what are some of those, those narratives? Well, I work in a very diverse environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have aboriginal people in my family. Mm-hmm. I know some, anyway. Um, I don't have any in my family. But I know some aboriginal people. Um, and pff, I'm not racist. I'm from England. <laughs> in, the, in the States, we say uh, people say, I'm not racist, I'm from Canada. <laughs> I'm not racist, I'm from Sydney. I'm not racist, I was in the military, on and on. So how many of you, in a conversation with a white person, have heard some version of those three narratives? Okay. And if we're being honest, we've said some version of those narratives, if we're white. Okay. Um, So let's, let's do a little discourse analysis here. When a white person invokes one of these narratives in a conversation about racism, they're giving you their evidence, right? This is white people's evidence for why we're not racist. That's not even a stretch there, is it? Isn't this what white people say to establish their lack of racism? Okay. So if this is my evidence, in order to be good evidence, it has to distinguish me from a racist. Right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be good evidence that I'm not racist. So a racist must not be able to do these things. Right? So racists uh, couldn't work in a three cubicles down from a person of color. <laughs> Apparently, aboriginal people don't know any racists. <laughs> and there's no racism in England, right? <laughs> so are you already noticing how absurd that is? right? Because even an avowed card-carrying racists can do these things and, and do do these things. I want to be clear. I owned my racism earlier. I am not an avowed racist. Um, an avowed racist for me would be um, a neo-Nazi white supremacist, like someone who embraces and, and uh, celebrates and works towards in, in, kind of incorporating their racism. I'm committed to challenging my racism, right? Uh, I'm not an avowed But even even one can. In fact, oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, I want you to notice how often white people invoke proximity as their evidence. And that's just really important to notice because it helps us, again, reveal what uh, structure of meaning we're operating from. And I wanted to show you this picture. This is Gary Young, a reporter from The Guardian, and he's interviewing... Open, avowed white supremacist Richard Spencer. Look how calm they are. Clearly, Richard Spencer, an avowed white supremacist, can have a conversation with a black man. I I, I can't emphasize this enough. I want you to notice, if it's in your head, if this is the evidence you use, why you think proximity and fond regard free you of racism because it helps reveal what you think racism is. And I want you to notice the response that I picked up from the, from the First Peoples and people of color in this room, when I said uh, you know, uh, they don't have any white progressives in their life uh, who are racist. Okay. I was in the Peace Corps. I'm on the equity team. I'm a minority myself. I tutored in remote communities. I received a skin name. <laughs> I need to say something about white people on equity teams. <laughs> uh, some of the most harmful, difficult, oblivious white people are on equity teams, OK? No matter what it is you guys call it here, the white folks involved in the work, uh, there are some wonderful and, I think, probably effective white folks. There are, it doesn't certify you. I already know all this. I mean, I told you, I've been to Costa Rica. (laughs) Well, we don't like how white our neighborhood is, but we had to move here for the schools. I think it's disingenuous. I think we do like how white our neighborhoods are. I'm a minority myself, right? So I know what it's like, and this one's my favorite. The real oppression is class. <laughs> yeah, let's get race off the table. I grew up in poverty. I, I can talk to you about uh, the intersection of race and class. <laughs> I knew I was less than because I was poor, but I always knew I was white. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you take anything. Pat Parker is a, is a black activist in the States, and she says, you give me any situation, you put some color on it, it'll be worse that you would think that growing up in poverty as a white person would be the same experience as a a not-white person. I I I think you need to think about that a little bit more. All right, so we notice that these are not colorblind. These are color-celebrate. I love it. I embrace it. But if we apply the same question, not true-false, but how do these narratives function, we actually get the same answer. All of them exempt the person from any part of the problem, take race off the table, close the discussion, and protect the racist hierarchy and the white position within it. They are not in impact any more progressive than colorblind. So we really have to ask ourselves, what structure of meaning am I drawing from? Have I ever actually asked myself that? What, what, does, what is the evidence that I use to credential myself, and what does it mean that my understanding of what racism is? So sociologist Joe Feagin has the concept of the white racial frame, which is the deeply internalized framework through which whites make racial meaning. And it includes uh, images, interpretations, perceptions, evaluations, emotions, and actions that position whites as superior and that are passed down and reinforced through society. And I want you to hold that uh, as I go through this next part. So this is my second book, What Does It Mean to be White? Um, And what I have noticed, I can start with myself, uh, my uh, inability. I was not raised to be able to answer that question. And I do this work day in and day out with groups. And many white people can't sustain one minute answering that question. And when we do answer it, uh, the way I often pose it is, what are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? White people will tell a story about an early relationship or encounter across race. Does that kind of make sense to you? They'll tell about... But I want you to notice that's not answering the question. (laughs) What are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? A cross-racial friendship is not answering that question, but it reveals again, how deeply we associate race with with what they have, not us. And if they're present, then race is present. But if they are not, there is no race. White people have a very hard time seeing white space as racialized space. But it is teeming with race. And every moment I spend in it, I'm being reinforced uh, in uh, many, many things. Uh, white worldview etc so here's how I begin to answer this question and I, I know this is relevant in this context so let's just imagine that I was born here when my mother was pregnant with me what environmental safety did she have the choice to live in and carry that pregnancy? What was the water, air, and soil quality where my mother had a choice to live and carry me when she was pregnant? What kind of nutrition was available to my mother when she was pregnant with me? What kind of uh, sanitation services? What kind of healthcare? What kind of education? What kind of transportation? Right. Uh, where could I be? Uh, delivered. I think the elder who introduced talked about being born in segregated wards, right? Where could I be delivered? How was my mother treated in the hospital? A recent uh, study in the U.S. revealed that up to 50% of medical researchers believe that black people feel less pain. Okay? Well, that <laughs> bias must have impacted how my mother's labor, my mother is white, how her labor was managed uh, during my pregnancy. Who delivered me? Who owned the hospital I was delivered in? And who came in that night and mopped the floor and took out the trash? I was born into a racialized hierarchy, the forces of which have been operating on me since before I took my first breath and which have shaped me every breath since, including when I got up this morning and looked in the mirror and didn't have to think about it. That's where I want to start, and not because I'm good or bad, but because I bring this consciousness to the table with me. And not being able to answer this question is not benign. People of color and First Peoples working and living in primarily white space know that most white people cannot answer that question. And if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. I am going to need to refuse your reality. And people of color spend an inordinate amount of time trying not to unsettle white people around race, lest they risk more punishment. It's an incredible drain of energy and resources. Again, that we can't answer that question is not benign. But I'm just going to give you a picture Uh, of some of the things to think about. We're gonna start way at the top, which would be God himself, (laughs) right? God as white, that's powerful. And as a child, I didn't look up and say, oh, God is white, but I never had to. It's relentless. And then, you know, I was raised Catholic. There's Jesus and Mary, the mother of God. And Jesus and Mary are historical figures who weren't actually white. But, again, how powerful to render them white. Adam and Eve, biblical characters, first human beings, of course, came from the continent of Africa. I'm represented in the halls of power. We looked at gender earlier. Let's look at the halls of power here in Australia. The chief executives, 97% white. Senior leaders, 95% white. Prime ministers, always 100% white. Senators, 97% white. Parliament, 99% white. High court judges, 100% white. Court of Appeal judges, 100% white. Halls of power. Give you a visual. It is a particular worldview. It is not a universal human worldview. I want to say, I want to be really clear, most teachers, most of all of the people in the halls of power whose images I just showed you cannot answer that question, what it means to be white. And grew up in primarily white environments, had primarily white teachers, right? And yet, they're sitting at the tables making decisions that will affect the lives of those people who not only not at that table, but with whom they have not ever been taught it's valuable to know or consider. This is literally on a science website. What would the scientifically perfect face look like? None of these these images I'm showing you here stand alone. Right? They connect and cohere to millions of others. Uh, that constantly reinforced the white racial frame. You know, I might look at these images and I might think, oh, I wish I was younger. But the fundamental signifier of ideal beauty is whiteness. And I've always been in the frame. I've never been fundamentally outside the frame. This is, right now, in 2018, what this says. Ever dreamed of representing Australia? Can you imagine who would look at this picture and not be able to say, uh, yeah, I've ever dreamed of it? Uh, and by the way, those really are three different girls. <laughs> you have to concentrate, but <laughs> this is an ad I found on a Delta in-flight magazine uh, a couple years back. Look at the racial hierarchy in that ad. Look at the Asian women in the middle, literally, wearing yellow. The black women in the back wearing brown. And then notice that it's an ad for a purse. And take a look at the black women's hands. It's just, you know, it's just a magazine. Ads are subliminally very powerful, very instantaneous, right? Of course, of those film directors, 99 men, 95 white. All right, I'll move real fast off that slide. Uh, (laughs) Fortunately, if you had Rush Limbaugh, I'd have the same reaction. uh, I was racially affirmed throughout my childhood, as are all white children today. As I mentioned, uh, I grew up in poverty. Uh, I'm not saying white people don't struggle or suffer or face barriers. We don't face that one. And not facing that one helps us with the ones that we do face. These are TV shows that are, were hugely popular worldwide, and I know they're familiar here, right? These are TV shows that all um, take place across the decades and they are all about ideal friendship. So this was Seinfeld. It was the '80s. We had Sex in the City in the '90s. We had Friends in the '2000s, and we had Gossip Girl. And then the latest show, Girls, which just ended its sixth season. Every one of these shows about ideal friendship that have been exported worldwide take place in New York City. Over and over, the message is, even amongst diversity, there's no value in an integrated life, that the ideal world is white. So I think perhaps the most profound way that my life has been shaped by my race is that I could be born into, I could live, I could play, I could learn, I could study, I could work, I could lead, I could... Worship, I could love, and I could die in racial segregation. And not one person who's ever loved me or guided me has ever conveyed to me that I've lost anything of value. That is the deepest message of all, that I could literally go to my grave with few, if any, authentic, sustained, cross-racial relationships. And no one ever suggested anything of value missing. In fact, that would be considered a good life and a good neighborhood and a good school, precisely because it's white. That's powerful. I want you to think, I want the white folks in the room, if you are married or if you've been to a lot of weddings, I want you to think, how often have you been to a wedding that was if not all white, virtually all white. What does your photo book look like? Right. My wedding looked a lot like that. Why would my funeral not look like that? It won't because I've worked really, really hard. But just following the trajectory laid out before me, that is how my life would end. Right? White people measure the value of our spaces by the absence of people of color. And we do it every day. I know exactly what a good school is, and I know what a good neighborhood is, and I know what's happening when it's coming up, and I know what's happening when it's going down. So my psychosocial development was inculcated in this water. This is the water of white supremacy, white superiority. I'm very comfortable with the term. It is a highly descriptive sociological term for what I've just shown you. This is the water from which white people say, We're objective on race. They play the race card. This is the water from which we say, I'll be the judge of whether that incident of racism is valid or not. I'll be the judge of who's qualified and who's not. So if we go back and we look at these pillars, this is what I think are the key kind of structures Uh, of racism today that allows us to keep getting the same inequitable outcomes despite uh, what we claim. So the good-bad binary is incredibly powerful, deep implicit bias, which you cannot help but have, Uh, individualism, which allows us to exempt ourselves, universalism, which allows us to position ourselves as outside of race. I can speak from the human position, but, but First Peoples speak from a race, racialized position. Uh, internalized priority, which you cannot help but have. Right? It comes out of my pores. Right? And again, I want to ask myself how, not if. Uh, on some level, an investment, and then the power of segregation in our truly kind of in the society at large. So these messages are raining down on every one of us 24-7. There aren't umbrellas. Again, the question is how, not if. And all of that sets us up to be very, very reactive and fragile when any of it is challenged, right? I come to feel entitled to my comfort, entitled to my position. I have superiority. I could never admit to that. That would mean I was a bad person, so I feel guilty. Uh, It's a kind of irrational stew (laughs) roiling just below the surface in in white people. And I'm sure uh, First Peoples and Peoples of Color in the room have noticed. Uh, That we tend to get a little irrational. So, this is what I call white fragility. I have part of being white is never having had to bear witness to the pain of racism on people of color. And to be really honest, rarely ever having to be held accountable for the pain I've caused people of color. Right? So, I've never had to build my capacity to withstand that discomfort. There's a kind of equilibrium that I enjoy as I move through my daily life. And when it's challenged, when I'm thrown off, I find that unbearable, and I need to get back into my comfort zone. Uh, so when I coined that word, the term white fragility, the fragility part is meant to capture how little it takes <laughs> to set white people off. So for lots of white folks, just suggesting that being white has meaning will set us off. Um, generalizing about white people, that will set us off. Uh, And for some of us, it takes more than that. Um, But it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's really effective, right? I lash back, and I do it in whatever way will stop that challenge and get me back into my comfort, which is my position of dominance. Right? I think about white fragility as the sociology of dominance. It's weaponized defensiveness, weaponized tears, weaponized hurt feelings. Right? So I argue, I minimize, I withdraw, I go silent. Uh, I'm a white female, so I cry. Uh, and then what happens when I cry? All the resources come back to me. And you become the aggressor, and I become the victim. Thank you. It doesn't have to be what I'm, again, intending. It's how it functions, right? Um, So I think of white fragility as a kind of everyday white racial bullying. We white people make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our inevitable, but often unaware racist patterns, that most of the time, they don't. Trust me, people of color working with white folks take home way more slights and indignities than they bother trying to talk to us about, because their experience is that they risk more punishment, that things are gonna get worse, um, for, the, for the people of color in the room and uh, First Peoples, I don't know if you get asked to be on every committee. Does that happen here? We've got to have some diversity on the committee, so you get asked to be on every committee. Because we need you to help us see if we're missing anything. You want to know how not to get asked to be on those committees anymore? Because they never pay you extra. Tell them what they're missing. In other words, name the racism you actually see on the committee. You won't get asked to be on the committee anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and it's kind of funny, but actually, you will become a personal problem. Uh, and so you actually risk your livelihood. Uh, and it's how we norm people of color into serving us, basically. We'll use them for diversity cover, but not actually uh, take in their perspectives. So I'm not the 1%. I've never even been a manager. But I can control the people of color in my orbit through my white fragility. Uh, You keep me comfortable, and you can be here with us. You challenge us, and you will be ejected. Everyday white racial control. I stay in my position, and you stay in in your place. So if we think about... um, the, how white fragility drives feelings like attacked, hurt, uh, anger, right? All these feelings you probably see. And then, of course, feelings drive behaviors, withdrawal, argumentation, playing the devil's advocate, mansplaining, one of my favorites, white whitesplaining. Um, if you look at the behaviors, and then you, then you have to ask yourself, what's under there that would cause those behaviors, right? That would cause those feelings and those behaviors. So I, I don't know what else it could be, but as a white person, I will be the judge of whether racism has occurred. <laughs> My learning is finished. I know all I need to know. Racism can only be intentional. Not having intended it cancels it out. So. I already told you, I didn't mean it. Move on. White people who experience another uh, form of oppression or who have suffered cannot have racial privilege. If I'm a good person, I can't be racist. My unexamined perspective is equal to anyone's. (laughs) I'm entitled to remain comfortable. As a white person, I know the best way to challenge racism, and you're doing it wrong. Nice people cannot be racist. If I can't see it, it isn't legitimate. You have yet to explain it to me so that I could see it. Have you ever ever watched a dynamic between a white person and a a person of color, and the white person keeps saying, "Um, but you misunderstood? This is what I want to offer that person. No, what if actually they understood you perfectly? They even understood what you really meant. What you don't understand is how what you really meant is coming from a racist paradigm. Right? Humility. If I have any proximity to first peoples or peoples of color, I can't be racist. If I have no proximity to first people or people of color, I'm racially innocent. <laughs> it doesn't have to be rational. It just has to work. <laughs> My is objective, yours isn't, all right? So I want to I wanna bring us to a close by what I believe would transform this, this thing. <laughs> and, and let me just say, in case I forget, it is so liberating and transformative to begin from the premise that if you are white, of course you have internalized all of this. And just start from there and then get to work trying to figure out, so what does it look like in my life, in my relationships, right? Rather than defending and deflecting and denying, right? It's actually liberating, because we're, we're definitely not fooling uh, people of color. All right, um, being good or bad is not relevant, right? And for the, for the First Peoples and folks of color in the room, I want you just to imagine, life if this were actually where white people were coming from right bias is implicit unconscious i don't expect to be aware of mine without a lot of effort racism is a multi-layered system infused in everything white people have some blinders on racism i have some blinders racism is complex i don't have to understand it for it to be valid White comfort maintains the racist status quo, so discomfort is necessary and important. But I must not confuse comfort with safety. I am safe in conversations about racism. The antidote to guilt is action. Nothing exempts me from the forces of racism. That changes the question from if to how. White people have investments in racism. I have some investments. This is why I need to be accountable. I'm not the best determiner of how well I'm doing. I bring my group's history with me. History matters. I need to earn trust, not expect or demand it upon sight. And people of color and First Peoples' distrust of white people is rational and well-earned. Show that you're different. Don't tell. That won't work. <laughs> feedback from First Peoples, People of Color indicates trust. It is an incredible risk across a history of harm. And odds are they saw something that said, I think I can go there with this person. And what happens next, your response to that feedback is going to dictate whether you have an authentic relationship or not. You might, if you don't respond well, you might think you have an authentic relationship. You likely won't. Feedback on white racism is difficult to give. How I receive the feedback is not as relevant as the feedback itself. In in popular terms, don't tone police. It takes courage to break with white solidarity. White solidarity is the unspoken agreement amongst white people that will keep each other comfortable around our racism. I don't want you to feel bad or be embarrassed so I'll, I'll just stay silent and collude with your racism right for, for white folks who uh, you know don't say anything at the family dinner cuz uncle Bob you know said that thing you don't want to ruin the dinner I want you to ask yourself why would interrupting racism ruin this dinner but letting it fly not ruin this dinner mm-hmm. but how can I support other white people who are willing and trying to break with white solidarity. What that means is, you don't want to break with it, fine. Don't throw the white people in your environment under the bus who are trying to speak up. First people and people of color's distrust in our institutions is also rational. Given socialization, it's more likely that I am the one who doesn't understand the issue. Can you imagine if white people actually took that on? <laughs> actually, maybe I'm the one who doesn't understand the issue. Right? And racism hurts, even kills people of color 24-7. Interrupting it is more important than my ego, self-image, uh, or feelings. Right? This is simply a framework of humility. And I saw some folks taking pictures, which is fine. You can download this on a handout from my website. (laughs) Oh, it's also in the book. I forgot that. (laughs) All right. So any white folks here? Okay, okay, okay. Now what do I do? Well, I have a question to offer back to you. What has allowed you not to know what to do? If you are white and that's your question right now, I want to challenge you by asking, how have you managed not to know when people of color have been telling us forever? right? I think it's a refusal to know. I think there's a willful ignorance. I don't think white people are as innocent as we often position ourselves to be. So it's meant to be a challenge. It's also a sincere question take out a piece of paper and start writing down why you don't know and you will have your map and nothing on it will be easy but the first thing will probably be I wasn't educated okay second I don't talk about this with really anyone Okay. on and on and on and now I have a special bit of guidance just for Australians Niceness is not anti-racism. <laughs> okay, Niceness is better than meanness, I would imagine. <laughs> it's not anti-racist. Niceness is not courageous. It's not intentional or strategic, and I can be super nice <clears throat> and still throw you under the bus. right? It takes strategic, intentional action. Smiling is not going to end racism. Saying hello. Again, those are are nice (laughs) ways to interact. They're not anti-racism, and they don't free you of racism. So what can white people do next? I am going to actually tell you what to do. Look it up. Seriously. Take the initiative. For a lot of white people, simply breaking with the apathy and go look it up like you would anything you cared about. That is like a huge breakthrough for a lot of white folks. But this is 2018. There's incredible resources out there. My website has so many resources. It's got you know, t- ten things you can do, eight things you can do. Yes, how do you raise white children? It has all of that, and it can lead you to lots of other things. Read the work of people of color. Listen to people of color. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this up here, uh, and I am gonna thank you because this was my first time in Australia, my first talk, and it was a, a really really rewarding experience. And I I thank you for being here and for your attention. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.